Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. It's a radio program dedicated to raising awareness of issues concerning animals. This includes advocacy, activism, protection, conservation, and importantly, appreciation. The show is broadcast from the 3CR studios in Melbourne on 855am and we're streamed live via the 3CR website. Recent podcasts are also available on the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au and the Freedom of Species podcast website. That's freedomofspecies.org. And all previous podcasts are available by iTunes. You're listening to Freedom of Species, and today we're joined by Dr. John McAvoy, who's a postdoctoral fellow at the Smithsonian Conservation Biology Institute's Conservation Ecology Centre. Yes, that's its full name. Um, and John's work revolves around conservation and animal movement behaviour, specifically um, the interplay between environmental, physiological, and cognitive factors that shape observed patterns of movement in wide-ranging and nomadic species. And John's been working on um, animal movement um, ecology for for quite a while now. In, oh, maybe 10 years ago, he was working in Greece on raptors and uh, pestering raptors, watching where they're moving. Uh, During his PhD in Australia, he um, looked at the movements of nomadic ducks, black ducks, uh, in central arid Australia, and now John is working in Myanmar, uh, looking at elephants and the interactions between elephants and humans, and seeing what their movement and tracking them can tell uh, tell us about that, and um, how we can think about conservation of these Asian elephants. And there's also some other work that John's been doing that uh, we might get to talk about as well. So thank you very much for making the time um, for us today, John. We really appreciate you coming on. Not at all. Thanks, Adam. It's good to talk to you again, and thanks for having me on. No worries. Um, and just before we get started, I just wanted to ask, uh, what what got you involved and interested in in conservation and, and looking after animals? Oh, I think that's probably quite a long story. Uh, basically, I'm kind of a, a nature boy from a very, very young age. So I grew up uh, in a small town quite close to uh, a local river and lake system and woodlands and spent a lot of time there since I could walk, uh, walking up and down every day, uh, kind of building a connection with all the animals and the wildlife and the environment in general. So. I think I was 12 when I decided that I wanted to be an environmental scientist slash ecologist. <laughs> and uh, uh, I decided a lot of things when I was 12, and, and I'm still doing most of them, so that's good, I think, or, or terrible. <laughs> Got staying power. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> or I'm um, very boring. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so what are you, what are you doing now um, working with the Smithsonian Conservation Biology Institute? Uh, yeah, it's quite a mouthful, so we can just call them SCBI if that helps. Um, so we do a whole lot of different things, and, and my job currently revolves around uh, two main projects. Uh, the majority of it is, is, as you mentioned, on elephants in Myanmar. Uh, I also work on uh, Shavalsky's horse and grey wolf in Mongolia, but um, most of what I'm doing, most of my efforts uh, revolve around the elephants. So Smithsonian have been in Myanmar for about 30 years Um I'm just the, the latest in a long chain of researchers who are coming over there and building on the relationships that other people have, have worked very hard to, to build up. Um, with the elephants, we first um, first started looking at elephants from a purely ecological point of view because uh, we're all ecological scientists, so we're interested in, in how are they moving and where are they going. And was this 30, 30 years ago or was this more recently? Uh, but, uh, yeah, so... Um, there's been lots of different projects going on, um, mm-hmm. but the elephant specifically, most of the elephant-specific uh, work about elephant movement would have started back in 2002 when they first started okay. putting radio collars on. And then 
since then they've moved on to, to GPS tracking. And I mean, elephants in general, just to step back from Myanmar, um, Asian elephants are, are super interesting because they live in the most densely populated areas and densely populated by humans uh, in the world. So if you look at a map of where people live and where elephants live, it's total overlap. Mm. But we know hardly anything about them compared to African elephants. We don't know uh, how big their home ranges are. We don't know where they go. We don't know what their habitat preferences are. And in They're... fact, when when you speak about elephants, or um, and I imagine this might be true for others, but for me, I certainly picture in my mind uh, African elephants, large um, sort of savanna, and also um, thinking about the poaching that occurs to African elephants. I don't, I don't often think, um, or my mind certainly doesn't go straight towards Asian elephants. Yeah, yeah, that, that is definitely an issue. I mean, for example, most people don't know that there are 10 times fewer Asian elephants left in the world than there are African elephants. Wow, so, so what's that number? Re- Sorry, go on. What's that number? How many um, Asian elephants are they, they think are out there? Well, there you go. There's another perfect example. It's how many do we think are out there? That there's no really good population estimate. It's somewhere between 30 and 50,000, but we know that those numbers are declining. Um so they, they're living right under our noses. But, um, I mean, one of the, the main differences um, between, say, African elephants, as you, you kind of uh, alluded to there, is they're out on the savannah. They're quite visible. You'll see them from literally from miles away. Mm. Whereas Asian elephants live in very dense habitats. They live in, in bamboo thickets. They live in dense forest. And because they're surrounded by humans, they, they very much shift towards nocturnal movement patterns. So they're moving at night. They're moving in dense forest. It's very hard to even see them. I've, I've Myself, I've never actually seen a herd of elephants in the open, in the wild. Um, you see parts of them in the forest. So that kind of leads to them being difficult to study and, and difficult to find out about what they're doing and who they're associating with and where they're going. But yeah, people's minds tend to go towards Africa and towards ivory poaching. Uh, yeah. And and are you finding... Um, so you were saying that you're uh, going in there and you're looking at the ecology of um, Asian elephants yeah. to start with. So so has it has it grown from that, has it? Oh, yeah, it's, it's very much kind of pivoted. I, I would say there were two main pivots that we had. So we started, as I said, we wanted to know basic things like where do they go, um, how much land do they use, what are their habitat preferences, and we're still researching those questions. But one of the major threats to, to um, uh, Asian elephants, which is widely acknowledged, is, is human-elephant conflict. So uh, as human um, habitat, sorry, human... Uh, habitation and uh, agriculture expand rapidly, particularly in Southeast Asia, some of these very rapidly growing populations. Um, land is cleared. It used to be elephant habitat. It's cleared for, <clears throat> excuse me, for rice or for oil palm. And that moves, the elephants move away, but they soon come back and, and they have a, a buffet in front of them of rice and oil palm and high energy foods. And of course, that brings them into conflict with the, the people who are trying to make their living from those those crops. So we started to look very closely at human-elephant conflict. We specifically went to conflict areas to track elephants there to see if um, there's something we could tell from the movement behavior about what makes one elephant a crop-rating elephant and others not. Uh, If there was any kind of early warning that we could give people about the way an elephant is behaving that might uh, give them some time to react or help the communities to to build up um, some sort of defense system for their crops that, that... is helpful to them but not harmful to the elephants mm-hmm. and we do a lot of work with burmese partners i mean there's nothing we could do on the ground in myanmar that um, isn't with the help of the forestry department there or local ngos so that's that was very much the focus of the last few years and then unfortunately we we have uncovered a bit of a, a poaching crisis uh, in myanmar which kind of took us and a lot of people by surprise because as you mentioned you tend to think of ivory poaching mm. uh, uh, in Africa, now, Asian elephants, only the males have sizable tusks, and even then, somewhere between 20 to 30% of them will actually carry large tusks. Yeah. So ivory poaching has been a thing in Asia, certainly, but it's if you're taking only occasional large males, it's uh, the population can squeeze by. It's not a good thing, but they can squeeze by. But we found between 2014 and uh, 2017, we... we collared 19 elephants as part of our our research program and seven of those dropped off the map very alarmingly very quickly and we were confirmed that they were they've been poached and it turned out that they've been poached for their skin so their the skin is sold um as a, a 
in Chinese medicine as a, a remedy for various uh, human skin ailments, which uh, mm. obviously there's no evidence to back it up. Uh, and skin poaching apparently had been going on under the radar for quite a while, but it seems that there's a, a big uptake. Uh, so we had seven of ours poached, our elephants, I say. I mean, they're Myanmar's elephants. And oh, then they're, our they're local... The, they're the elephants. They're sort of no one's elephants. They're their own elephants. <laughs> but exactly. they live in, they live in, in the true. space that we yeah. call I tend to think of the ones... You, you put a collar on them, we think, oh, they're one of ours, but obviously mm. they're... Yeah, yeah. The elephants are the elephants. Mm. And... Uh, I'd say Myanmar's elephants more in, in the in the sense of uh, that they have uh, a certain responsibility or stewardship towards them to mm-hmm. to make sure that they survive in their in their landscape. Yep. So, yeah, our local partners when we found that a number of ours had been poached, they went out looking and and they found alarming rates of poaching happening. They found one mass grave of of twenty individuals, a whole herd had been slaughtered. Wow! Uh, they an extra forty animals just in 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 one year. Um, so the skin poaching is really alarming because you don't need to just take males. They take males, they take females, they take babies. And with such a slow reproducing species and the social structure being what it is, taking out reproductive females and calves is a, a, a really, really good way to drive a species to extinction very quickly. Mm, absolutely. And can you just talk about that a little bit more, that, um, the disruption that taking – do you know the types of disruption, social disruption that taking um, individuals out of a a group of elephants has on that group? Does that impact sure. um, um, the element, the elephants themselves? Well, absolutely, it certainly has impact. I think that um, that's that's pretty obvious. But as to what the impact is, uh, again, our lack of of background knowledge of uh, elephant. Grouping the society. I mean, so again, we tend to think of African elephants, and they have very, very strong, very stable social structure. Um, you, if you follow a group of elephants in Africa, you can be pretty certain one that they're all related, and you can also be certain of the hierarchy within the group. Mm-hmm. Uh, Asian elephants are a little bit more flexible. They tend to have uh, they associate with whom they they would like to associate with. Um, so you will have groups, and and they will largely be related, but. Do we have a bit of a, a kind of a fusion fission situation where groups come together and then tend to break up and come together and break up? Um, they're not as stable and as predictable in their social uh, organization as African elephants are. The males, for example, will tend to reproductive males will will move around uh, and kind of uh, roam roam the landscape a little bit looking for groups of females that are receptive, and then they'll move on somewhere else. So that's why if you're only taking males. Uh, if you if there was a relatively low number of males were being taken, other males would move into that area and and fill that role. But by taking the reproductive females, it takes so long to produce a calf um, that you really uh, the the birth rates start to to plummet if you're taking out all of the breeding females and even hunting the calves themselves. I mean, as I mentioned, we have had situations where the whole herd has been taken because, um, unfortunately, they all have the valuable commodity of skin on their back. Mm. And and I suppose we we might not know much um, about what has happened previously. I mean, Myanmar has been a very um, isolated country for a very long time and recently opened up. Has Do you, do you get any sense or is there any sense that um, the... The opening up of Myanmar uh, is making it easier for these things to happen, these poachings to um, get out to an external market, or is that sort of not not really known? That's a, that's a really interesting question. I mean, it, it's kind of a double-edged sword in a way because opening to the world has meant that they're, they're more open to people like us, to, to researchers coming in and, and doing this work. Absolutely. And really, if it wasn't for putting these collars on the elephants – this whole poaching crisis would have, would have kind of flown under the radar because it's mm-hmm. happening in, in rural areas. People are, are not particularly likely to to report um, elephant poaching in case they get blamed or get caught up in it. Um, so we, it's interesting in that sense. I mean, in terms of international markets, the, the big market, and you won't be surprised to hear it for for almost all of the the, the high value wildlife uh, trade is is China. Mm-hmm. Um, one interesting effect that, that has been noticed by by other partners, by other NGOs, I think WCS did some work on, on this, where China recently uh, announced that it was going to ban ivory, the sale of ivory, uh, and they're working towards that, and, and I, I believe that's serious, and they're actually doing that. 
And one effect that that's had is on the Chinese Myanmar border is a lot of high value ivory shops, these places that look like Tiffany's and jewelry stores have just hopped the border and they've set up shop uh, on the other side of the border. So the, the Chinese border area is where a lot of, uh, a lot of the high value trade happens. A lot of tours come over and yeah, I would say that being more open to tourists means more tour buses coming into these areas. And Myanmar is a very, very complicated um, country socially and politically, uh, which I probably won't dive too much into, but mm, no, they have over 35 different ethnic groups. They have, uh, they have many different languages in different parts of the country, and there are various uh, groups of uh, separatists in, in different parts of the country. So depending on where you are in the country, the, the, the degree of government control over what's happening there is uh, uh, fairly variable. Mm-hmm. So the fact that, that we're able to go in there at all and do some work and, and build up partnerships with the, the forestry department uh, is is pretty good and something we're, we're pretty thankful for. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, without this sort of work, the elephants, we, as you said earlier, we wouldn't know that these things are happening to Asian elephants in that part of the world. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd never heard of skin poaching before I got this job, and, and many of my colleagues hadn't either. It's still quite a shock to tell people uh that this is happening. Yeah. And the truth is... The Smith Street Dreaming Festival is coming soon. Smith Street Dreaming has become one of the area's most anticipated street festivals. This year, we're featuring Dave Arden and Band, Alice Skye, Benny Walker, Birds, the Jury Jury Dance Group and Indigenous Hip Hop Projects with MC Layla Guruwiri from the Mangrook Footy Show, and much more. Smith Street Dreaming, corner of Smith Street and Stanley Streets, Collingwood. Saturday, July the 22nd, 1pm to 5 o'clock. Smith Street Dreaming, one street, many mobs, one community. Smith Street Dreaming is a drug and alcohol-free event and a 3CR supporter. Very fitting song uh, called Silent Spring by Probot. The Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is continuing its Stop Failing Our Kids campaign until this year's Victorian state election. We're asking people to sign an online petition and to send postcards to Premier Daniel Andrews, calling for his government to abandon plans to build a $288 million youth prison at Cherry Creek. We want that money directed to culturally appropriate programs to address the underpinning issues rather than incarcerating children. For more information and to sign the petition, visit Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Postcards are available at 3CR and locations listed at istramelbourne.com. Premier, it's time your government stopped failing the kids. Istra Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. We're speaking with Dr. John McAvoy, who's a movement ecologist working out of the Smithsonian um, Ecology Center in America. And John's been tracking Asian elephants in Myanmar and looking at the human-elephant conflicts that are occurring there. And earlier on, John, you mentioned that um, that when you were first looking into um, movement of elephants, you were sort of thinking about the conflicts with local people with um, maybe coming and raiding crops, rice crops or um, other crops, and how you might, um, through knowledge of movement, might be able to mediate 
that that conflict. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, the conflict between local people and the local animals? I mean, we've we've spoken a little bit about the um, horrendous uh, poaching that is happening for external um, trade. It sounds like, but what what is going on between the um, the humans and the animals in Myanmar? Yeah. In those local, yeah. in those local towns. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting and complicated and, and kind of difficult situation to deal with. Um, so, quite a few times recently, I've, I've been doing some uh, student events and other things uh, with the Smithsonian, where I've been talking to conservation students, and they ask me all about the work. And what I end up saying is that uh, you think you're working on animals, you're not. You're working on people. Um, you're working on, on changing people's attitudes and people's behaviors. And I mean, it's it's Something we have to be very careful of is is being the uh, well-financed Western researcher who shows up and then tells people that they're doing things wrong and, and they have to protect the elephants. And these, something we need to remember is that these people are losing their livelihoods. They're quite often losing their lives. A number of people are killed every year. Uh, their houses are being destroyed. You know, even an elephant herd walking across your field, even if they don't eat the rice, they can destroy your livelihood for the year and you, you lose your ability to feed the family. And there, in Myanmar, there aren't uh, well-developed compensation schemes. So for people who live in these areas, they they have uh, respect for elephants, they have a like for elephants. Whenever we've done surveys, uh, we do a lot of uh, surveys about people's attitudes towards uh, elephants and towards poaching. And with our local partners, we do a lot of education and outreach, um, teaching people who move into these villages, into these areas who may not necessarily have lived in the country their whole lives, how to behave around elephants or how not to behave around elephants and, and how to be safe around elephants. So that's a, a big portion of the work is is getting local NGOs on the ground, speaking their language, working with people and finding solutions for them. And one of the main programs that we run in terms of mitigating, um, so we can use the GPS collars uh Sometimes people tend to think we can use them as an early warning system. In a sense, you can, but uh, I can tell you where one elephant who's wearing the collar is. I can't tell you where the ones who are not collared are. Mm. Uh, so there are various uh, methods that people have used around the world, but um, from partners in Sri Lanka who have a long uh, history dealing with this stuff, um, we have gone with an electric fencing program. So that's uh, a small electric fence around the crop, which is a temporary fence, and in some cases where villages are, are being uh, damaged repeatedly by elephants knocking down houses and, and taking food from people's houses, uh, they will erect a permanent fence around the, the village. Now, the, the electric fence is a very, very low voltage. It's something we're very careful. We've trained experts to go out and, and help the local community to learn all about uh, how to manage and maintain the, um, the the fence in a safe way for, for the elephants and for humans. Mm -hmm. The idea is that the elephants will get a little buzz and turn around and decide not not to go in there. Now, with the temporary crops, what's really important is um, that while you need the crop protected, you put the fence up, and as soon as it's harvested, you take the fence down because elephants learn very, very quickly. Uh, and if you give them enough time to experiment, they'll find a way to break the fence. They'll realize that their tusks don't uh, conduct electricity or they'll find the one part of the fence that if they break it, yeah. uh, the circuit is broken. So yeah. you give them enough time, they will find their way around any method you can think of. So the idea is with the crops that it's a, it's up there as a temporary deterrent and then it's it's gone away and they, they don't get time to learn about it. And that's been pretty successful. The, the program we, we're working on is, again, working with the local community. So they'll all come together and have a meeting, decide they want a fence, They'll all contribute a certain amount of money to a bank account for maintaining that fence, and then we'll send our local team in, and they will teach them all about the fence and help them get it set up. And hopefully from there, it, it kind of grows its own legs and, and runs on from there as its own project. Mm. Yeah, I think I think that's, um, that's a really interesting approach, especially as you say, um, the people on the ground living with and um, in the same same places as these elef elephants, there is serious conflict there, and and they're um, they're at threat. And if if by putting up these fences you're able to reduce that threat to the people a small amount, um, that might change their attitudes and behaviours towards animals um, towards the elephants in a positive a positive way. Have you looked at that at all? Yeah. Have you seen whether the fences 
by being able to exclude um, elephants from fields, it actually improves people's um, value, value, valuation of those animals? Absolutely. So um, the, the fencing program itself hasn't really been going long enough to, to get a, a countrywide evaluation in that sense. But one of our PhD students, Christy Sampson, she's been working for a long time doing surveys on um, baseline surveys on people's attitudes towards elephants, people's attitudes towards poaching. And the attitude towards elephants is, is almost overwhelmingly positive all the time. And, and they have a, a spiritual significance in the, in the Buddhist belief system in Myanmar as well. So people are happy to have elephants there. They're just in in need of a, a, something to balance that so they can have the elephants, but that they can live and, and thrive in, in these villages. Mm. But in terms of the one uh, potential kind of uh, knock-on effect of the fencing that I see anyway is that if you don't have fencing, or at least if you don't have engagement from government or from NGOs or somebody helping you out, uh, if poachers rock up into the village and say, hey, I'll give you a couple of thousand dollars if you tell me where the elephants are, you'll have more money you've ever seen in your pocket and you'll have no elephant problem. That's an issue. And, and that's something we've had where our education teams have gone out, revisited a village that had problems. And they've said, hey, so how is it going? Uh, what's the elephant situation like? And they said, oh, there's no elephant situation anymore. They're gone. And it was because they'd all that somebody had called in the poachers and, and removed the elephants. Um, so that's really what we're trying to help to avoid those situations so that we can reach out to people and say, here's a solution. It works for you. It works for the elephants. And in that case, if the poachers come to town, they are hopefully rebuffed and, and told to sling their hook. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, in many of these um, wildlife sort of conservation uh, situations where where individuals, individual uh, animals on the ground need to be looked after. It's often the local local communities and the local um, people who have the best chance at doing that and looking after. Absolutely, those. and if we don't have a good connection and support from those local people, we might as well go home because it's it's all just external and it's not going to change in any long term serious way. So that we are very careful to try and build up those relationships. Mm. And you mentioned that you do that. There's been some surveys on um, people's attitudes towards poaching. So they've got a very positive attitude towards ele elephants. Is there what's the attitude towards poaching? Yeah. So that work is still being done right now. Actually, I just looked at a draft of a paper yesterday. So it's not been published yet. So I don't want to um, yeah. uh, talk too much about it. But um, poaching is interesting. We were asking interesting questions in terms of um, where do people think poachers come from. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, where where do they think they're selling their items, those kinds of things. And you do seem to see a difference in the rural populations who are actually living in amongst the elephants and urban populations who have maybe a slightly more disconnected and potentially idealized view of, of the elephants. Um, mm -hmm. If you ask people, uh, are, is it local people who are doing this or is it uh, foreigners who are coming into the country and doing the poaching, uh, you'll see different attitudes depending on where people live and uh, to be honest, it, it is a mix. I, I don't think there are foreign, necessarily foreign poachers who are coming in, but they're certainly often financed uh, by foreign uh, entities, and they're certainly professional, professional groups. Um, these elephants are. Uh, unfortunately, I get to see an awful lot of gruesome pictures of elephants being sent to me on a weekly basis, but it's a professional butchery of of elephants that's going on. So these these are not local yahoos are having a go uh this is a an organized criminal situation mm. so yeah do people have, have differing attitudes towards poaching uh, generally it's they will tell you that it, that they have negative attitudes towards poaching but then an interesting question that we asked is is if people feel that the interests of humans and their safety and their food supply should come above the elephants and you'll tend to find that people in rural areas uh will just be edged over the mark into, into the yes. They they feel that, mm. that their safety food should be prioritized over that of the elephants, where people who don't live in amongst them, who never have to worry about an elephant smashing their house or killing their kid, um, they feel that, that elephants should be uh, protected equally with humans. So there's interesting attitudes there, and there's interesting places that we can try to inject ourselves in and run education programs and see if we can affect those attitudes. Yeah, all very interesting things and and potential ways to um to influence the the situation there which is great um and oh you mentioned something 
Ah, the, the professionalism of the poaching. That seems to be something that we see all over the world with um, with professionalised poaching of large large animals often. It's in Africa we see the same thing um, and it sounds yeah. like the same thing in, in Asia. It's And I feel like I've recently heard that the black market is actually shifting towards poaching animals over other um, means of making money like drugs and things like that because it's easy and comes with a little less risk and can be incredibly profitable. Um, so it's it's sad. It's a very sad sad time for lots of animals out there at the moment. Yeah, I mean it's it's most of the the poaching that I mean the, you're talking about unfortunately very high value commodities and and even with African elephants a lot of that is being fueled by the Chinese market. Mm. A lot of what's what uh, what's taken in in Africa is is funneled through various intermediaries and ends ends up in in China. But not just China, and um, we also work uh, on a kind of a separate project that, that's grown out of this. Um, we work on a broader wildlife trade, wildlife trafficking project within Myanmar. So we're doing countrywide surveys of hunters and, and knowledgeable individuals in villages, asking what's being hunted, how many do you see, where do you see them, of various species, everything from pangolin to uh, to the elephant, of course. Mm. to deer and gibbon and, and you name it. Uh, unfortunately, you name it, it's, it's being hunted. Um, I recently asked a, a, one of our local partners to help me make a restaurant survey. So when you go to a restaurant, you can see what's on the menu. And after about an hour, I, I ran out of space and, and ran, out of, uh, <laughs> ran out of energy huh? to keep writing down species that were, that were being eaten. It's, it's quite so. What's interesting is some, some species are, are consumed locally. Uh, pangolin, porcupine, uh, smaller things like that will generally go to the local guy in the local market or, or to the local restaurant. Mm -hmm. Whereas a high value thing like a tiger or an elephant, um, that will be professionally butchered, uh, stored and, and shipped um, through various black market channels um, to these border regions usually. Um, and that's something we're, we're trying to get a handle on is, is where is this stuff being hunted? Where is it going? Where is the hunting pressure? Where should law enforcement focus their efforts? Um, so that's that's actually what's taking up a lot of uh, my focus at the moment is, is that broader wildlife trade, wildlife trafficking project. And there's a lot of efforts going on by a number of NGOs um, who all are coming together to try and build up these data sets of what's actually going on, because that's the first step of, of finding out what's what's happening and dealing with it. Um, but there's also a lot of trade happening online these days, as you might expect. Um, there are a number of other groups, uh, IFAWS for one, the International Fund for Animal Welfare. They do a lot of online research, seeing what's available on, on YouTube or on eBay or on the, the Chinese version of Weibo. And a lot of elephant skin product, uh, products are being sold online. There was a press release by a group called um, Elephant Family recently uh, called Skinned. They're all about the skin trade, particularly from Myanmar. And sometimes it, it seems almost industrial. There are people producing crates and crates of of medicinal bottles of, of elephant skin powder mm -hmm. so there's a lot of money being made in this and it's it's very well financed and as you mentioned these these groups are uh professional at what they're doing which is uh pretty dispiriting but we do our best yeah yep and it's it's great that yourselves and the people on the ground in Myanmar are working on this issue and and trying to find solutions for elephants and and other animals that are being exploited. Uh, we'll just go for a quick break after that pretty heavy um, heavy topic, and hopefully we'll talk about something a little bit more um, uh, hopeful after this. Yarra City Council presents the 6th Annual Leaps and Bounds Music Festival 2018, celebrating live music in Yarra, featuring the likes of Black Scott in Go Gaga at the Gasometer, Penny Eichinger at the Yarra Hotel, Queering the Pitch with Mama Alto at Hairs and Hyenas, a hip-hop music showcase, Girls to the Front at the Laundry, and much, much more. Ten days in July, with over 30 events at venues across the city of Yarra. For more information and tickets, go to leapsandboundsmusicfestival.com. The Sounds of Winter, a 3CR supporter. Whoa. 
course was Marvin Gaye with Mercy Mercy Me. Fight for your mic. Donate now to 3CR's annual Radiothon. Call 9419 8377 or go to 3cr.org.au forward slash to pledge your donation and help 3CR give a voice to those not represented in the mainstream media. Welcome back. Uh, you're listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR, and we're talking to Dr. John McAvoy, a movement ecologist working, uh, looking at lots of different animals and their movement around the place. Um, we've just been speaking about uh, Asian elephants and their human-elephant conflicts that uh, John's been looking at in Myanmar. Um, but John, you also mentioned that you work on a horse project. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. So uh, I work on a reintroduction project of a very rare horse um, with a very difficult to spell and pronounce name. So to the best <laughs> that's of my why, that's why I didn't. That's why I didn't <laughs> yeah. say it. <laughs> yeah, it, it's. I, I believe the 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 correct. I say in inverted commas pronunciation is uh, Shavalsky's horse. Uh, but it's spelled with a P and an R and a Z at the start, so you can make up your own mind about how it's supposed to be pronounced. Uh, so this is a, a wild horse, um, often called the the only true wild horse in the world that has never been domesticated, um, although there's been a recent scientific paper that's thrown the cat amongst the pigeons in, in that sense. Um, but these, these horses used to be ranging all throughout Western Europe and Asia. If you're familiar with the Lascaux cave paintings in France, these featured uh, Shabaski's horse, these wild horses. So ah, yeah. they've been around for a long time, but uh, sadly went extinct in the wild. Um, the last one in the wild was seen in uh, in the northern China, Mongolia area in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. But they survived in zoos. There were 13 uh, in captive populations around the world. And, and from those 13, uh, a species survival plan kind of kicked into into gear and a lot of care for breeding and conservation work by zoos um, kept the, the population alive. And eventually, in the late 80s and mid-90s, they were reintroduced. Uh, they were reintroduced back into where they'd been most recently seen, which was uh, that area of northern China, the Gobi Desert and, and uh, Mongolia. So we've been working on them in a national park in Mongolia uh, near Ulaanbaatar, where they've reintroduced them in 1991, and they have a fully wild population. They're not um, not kept captive in any any sense. They're not given supplementary feeding. They're just out there, mm. and they currently have uh, somewhere between 350 and 400 in the wild, uh, which is a massive success if you think about there only being 13 left in the world um, yeah. not very long ago. So it's a, it's a big kind of flagship project for a lot of zoos to to show that they can be a positive force for conservation in the world and, and can really. Uh, uh, pull off things like this when, when nobody else could have done it. Um, so they're back in the wild now, and uh, as you might expect with a species that's been extinct since uh, the 60s, we don't know a lot about how they behave in the wild when they're out there. So that's, again, part of my job is uh, tracking these guys, um, seeing where they're going, how are they using the park. Um, one interesting thing about these particular group of horses is they don't seem to want to go anywhere. They, um, they've used a very limited area of the park for a long time even though there are quite good places for them to, to feed and figuring out why that might be. Um, it could be livestock pressure from, from livestock around the, the park. Mm -hmm. It could be wolves within the park, which we're also tracking to look at those interactions. Um, they could just be lazy. They could be quite happy where they are. They have no reason to go anywhere else. Um, there's lots of interesting questions about, about how they're going in the wild and what they're doing. And uh, 
yeah, and about their social structure. And yeah, so that's that's an interesting project that that affords me the chance to go to Mongolia and and work again with with partners on the ground there who are very connected with the horses and have a long history of and a cultural social history with the horses and a lot of knowledge to share about them. Yeah, great. And a yeah, sounds like a good success story. Um, despite the role of zoos. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, I wanted to two questions before we um, we wrap up. I wanted to ask uh, how do you how do you um, get through your days when you're faced with um, some pretty atrocious and uh, hard things? As you were saying, you see photos often of weekly sent through of uh, elephants being slaughtered and I imagine um, hear some pretty pretty rough stories how do you how do you get through that how does how do you work through that situation and as you talk as you mentioned before sitting down with someone and talking about all the different animals who are taken to restaurants um, and yeah and becoming overwhelmed with that how does how does that yeah, how do you negotiate that yeah. space? That's an interesting question. Yeah, and it's something that that comes up a lot, I think, in conservation. Uh, I recently had a colleague come visit and ask, how do you deal with all the despair? <laughs> Which was kind of set the mood for a, a very grim, uh, grim day. But, um, yeah, it's interesting. So I think in conservation, it's always going to be a challenge because you're going to these areas. The reason I'm there is because there's a problem and because we feel that the bringing science to the table can can help the elephants and the people and and help affect that that problem in a positive way mm. um there's a lot of focus recently within our organization and others uh they run a, a thing called earth optimism day and people ask uh, how are you optimistic and what are you optimistic about and i must say it's very difficult to be optimistic uh facing what we're seeing in Myanmar. i tend to say for me optimism has a certain sense of 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 hope but a, a certain lack of agency to it so i i prefer to say i may not be optimistic but i'm certainly determined uh, and and as you alluded to earlier for me it's the feeling that if we weren't there if we weren't putting those collars out if we weren't learning all we could about the elephants if we weren't reaching out to communities and, and talking to people and trying to change attitudes things would be a whole lot worse than they are so as bad as it is and as rough as it is to see these pictures of, of dead elephants and, and sometimes even dead people um if we weren't there and if we weren't uh, pushing against the tide, uh, it would be a whole lot worse. So we have a chance to, to make things better. Um, mm-hmm. And I try to keep that in mind and keep that sense of, of being determined to affect positive change. Uh, I'm not always going to be happy. I'm not always going to be enjoying uh, being involved in this, this pretty terrible situation. But again, if we're not there, then uh who will be, you know, uh, that's kind of my thinking. But I think everybody who works in conservation, particularly in these kind of uh, issues where you're dealing with a population that, that's uh, being attacked, um, everybody has their own, I think, it like a sell-by date. There's there's going to be a day when you can't take it anymore and you just don't have the energy to keep fighting that fight and, and pushing back. And, and that's the day when you pass it on to the younger generation and give somebody else the baton and, and let them have a run at it. And for me... That sell-by date's not here yet, but I can see it coming in the future, and, and I'm hoping that there's a young generation of people we can hand it over to. Yeah, I hope so too. Uh, one other question. I wanted to get you your opinion, um, or actually just your um, yeah, your expert opinion on a situation happening in Victoria at the moment, or that's just recently happened in Victoria. And I know that in a past life you're a real bird person, um, so it's <laughs> quite strange that you're... Uh, working on elephants and and horses because birds were a strong focus of your research. But there's a recent, and particularly you're interested in uh, raptors and birds of prey uh, in a past life. Um, In Victoria, I'm not sure if you heard, but recently in uh, south east Victoria, uh, near Orbos, um, there were 136 wedge-tailed eagles found found um killed found killed purposefully um and i just wanted to get your your thoughts as an ecologist what sort of impact that number of um top predatory uh birds being killed might have on the ecosystem and and that population of of wedge-tailed eagles just want to make sure you end on a depressing note gosh i had heard that (laughs) 
had read that article and and yeah i mean and for the record it's not a past life i'm still very much interested in raptors and elephants and horses and fish if it moves even if it doesn't i'm quite a fan <laughs> so um yeah and, and wedgetail particularly i've got a connection the first time i ever came to australia um back in 2003 i spent my my time walking around the bush looking at, at wedgetail legal nests and unfortunately it is a thing of of farmers it's it's definitely gone down a lot. Farmers used to shoot them and, and pin them out on their fence lines, um, which was pretty horrific, but it's not something you see a lot of anymore. It still does happen. But I'd seen that article. And yeah, I mean, the ecological effect would be massive. I mean, it's pretty disgusting. So um, they are territorial species. They they have quite large territories. Um, so if you think of the, to, to kill 130 animals. So if that farmer, whoever it was, had, had killed one breeding pair, another breeding pair would have moved in. And it seems that he just kept that conveyor belt going and, and, and kept so what he created there was a, a kind of an ecological trap. So there's good territory, another species, another pair will move in and they're also not going to make it. And then another pair moves in and they get taken out. So really the, I mean, I, in terms of the, the national population of wedge tail eagles, I don't think this one particular event is going to, uh, have a major impact, but in terms of the, the local or even regional population, that could be a disaster. And regardless of, of the, the broader ecological effects, for somebody to sit there and repeatedly kill 130 raptors that are of no threat to them in any way whatsoever um, is is mind-boggling. Mm. I mean, we, we deal with, we talked about elephants, they'll come and, and trash your house if you've got some food in there. What, what, Thread a raptor, a wedge-tailed eagle is a, generally a scavenger. They they maybe take uh, agricultural animals, but but very weak ones, very young lambs if they're separated from their mothers. It's pretty rare that most of what they do is take roadkill. Yep. So to to go after them in such a, a vicious and concentrated way uh, is very very difficult to understand. Yeah, that's a very sad story again. Um, yeah. on, on on that note, uh, do you have any any um, positive and happy stories to tell us about the world of conservation and maybe animal movement, um, so we don't end on such a a sad note? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, round here where I, I live right now in, in Virginia, it's it's summertime on the edge of a national park, so it's like a Disney movie around here. I've got I've got. Bambi and Thumper and Bluebirds and everything all around my garden. I feel like if I step outside and sing, some of them are going to join in the chorus. Um, <laughs> but on a kind of wider note, I mean, uh, getting back to Myanmar, for example, the, the things that, that I'm really encouraged by and really happy about are we have uh, guys from Myanmar, students from Myanmar, who we have worked with and helped to identify and develop and they're over here now. Uh, one one of our, our students, our, our staff members who helped us with uh, our um, surveys around the country, uh, she is just about to start a master's in Yale. Um, so she's coming over here. Uh, she's going to get that master's. And we have another student who works a lot with me on the tracking project, uh, Ong Yin Chan. And he's completing his master's and potentially a PhD. And those guys are going back to Myanmar and and they are really the leading light for the future of, of conservation in Myanmar. They're, they're local, they speak the language, they're embedded in the culture and in the country, and they're invested in it, and they have every intention of going back there and applying themselves to these problems. So seeing those guys really stepping up and and taking charge and, and taking the lead on these things, that's, that. I mean, it sounds a bit trite, but it's actually really exciting to, to see that happen because it hasn't happened up till now. So mm-hmm. that's super exciting. And with the horses, the horses are, are doing well, which is good. They had lots of babies this year. We're really happy about that, and they seem to be happy where they are. They don't seem to want to, want to move anywhere. Uh, but we're collaborating over there. We're tracking the wolves to see what they're doing and try to get people to stop shooting them, and other local partners are tracking vultures over there. So we have this outdoor laboratory almost. We have um, predators, prey, scavengers, all, all being tracked, and we're really kind of building a a really cool collaborative uh, project that, that uh, could be super exciting, I think, in the future. So, yeah, there are probably a few things that I'm happy about. Fantastic. Good. Um, and just before we go, are there any ways, if someone's moved by what's happening with elephants or the horses or anything you've discussed, are there ways that people can um, support the elephants in Myanmar or is it um, not quite there yet? 
Uh, well, I mean, they they can always donate to to us. <laughs> so, yep. so how would they uh, how would they do that? So they would do that through the National Zoo. Uh, so the Smithsonian is, is a very big organization. There's 19 different museums and a zoo and uh, lots of different research centers. But if they were to go to the Smithsonian uh, Conservation Biology website or even uh, go search for the Smithsonian National Zoo and Asian elephants, um, I'm pretty sure a picture of my mad head will pop up. Um, so one can can donate through the, the zoo itself. And those those funds are would be passed on, or we actually a lot of our work is, is done by um, uh, there's a quite a history of philanthropy in in, in the U.S. When it, when it comes to these kind of projects, so sometimes single donors can make quite a big difference. Um, can help us buy collars or help pay for our, our expenses. Otherwise, there are lots of other uh, NGOs that we work with very closely in Myanmar. Um, some of the big NGOs you might be familiar with, like WWF, um, Flora and Fauna International. Um, uh, the Wildlife Conservation Society, all of us are, are pointed in the same direction and all of us working towards the same thing. So if people feel like they, they want to contribute and, and, and donate to any of those organizations, that, that would be excellent. Fantastic. Thank you very much for your time, John. I really appreciate that. Well, and um, sharing the story and the plight of the Asian elephant in Myanmar and I imagine in other parts of um, of Asia as well. Uh, so thanks for coming on the show yeah. all the way from Virginia, thanks, Virginia in the US. Yeah, well, thanks, Adam. It's been great to talk to you, and hopefully it wasn't uh, too depressing. And you've been listening to Freedom of Species, at 3CR 855 AM and live at 3cr.org.au. And I just wanted to apologise for some of the recording quality on that um, that interview. I There was a bit of popping coming through from me and I'll definitely make sure next time I do a recording um, via Skype, I'll make sure to get the recording quality much crisper for your listening pleasure. Um, before I head off, I just wanted to mention one upcoming event, community event, that's um, happening on the 4th of August, and tickets are available and free, I believe, um, and that is a workshop called Community as Activism. Activism, uh, building community within the animal liberation movement and beyond. And this is an event run by the Institute for Critical Animal Studies Oceania and will be held at the Library at the Docks, which is in Nam or um, so-called Melbourne, down in the Docklands. That's from 1 to 5 p.m. on Saturday, the 4th of August. So if you are interested in community as activism and building community within the animal liberation movement, I strongly suggest you get down to that great-looking event. Um, have a fantastic Sunday afternoon, and I hope it's still nice and sunny out there. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.